I was more scared of getting that messed up with my wife sitting right there. She said, now go practice it and don't mess up. Uh, Palm Sunday, here we are. Uh, this time last year, I was talking to a camera right in front of me. No, that was Easter. This is Palm Sunday. <laughs> Come on, work with me now. Um, I came across this story as a way of getting into our text this morning. It's a little illustration. It's actual historical event that took place on December the 17th, 1903. The Wright brothers. Have you heard of these two guys? Orville and Wilbur Wright. On that day, they made five attempts to fly a machine, a flying machine, and on their fifth attempt, they did it. They accomplished a 12-second flight covering a distance of 120 feet. Wow, man can fly. So in their excitement, they send a telegram back to their sister, Catherine. And it said, quote, we have flown for 12 seconds. We'll be home for Christmas. Her being very excited about the news ran down to the local newspaper and talked to the editor about what had happened. She told the editor about her brother's new flying machine and that they would be home for Christmas if he liked to set up an interview. He says, that's great. I'll definitely put something in the newspaper about it and I would like to talk to them. Well, on December the 19th, the local newspaper placed the following headline on the sixth page of the paper. Ready for this? Wright Brothers Home for Christmas. That's all he put. He completely missed the story. The big story was that they're going to be home for Christmas. The big story was they had attempted, attempted flight and they had discovered they could do it. Granted, it only went 12 seconds for 120 feet, but they accomplished it. He completely missed the story. Now, if we're not careful, this week leading up to Easter, we can miss the story. This passage this morning describes a significant event in the life of Jesus. Now, most title this the triumphal entry. It begins what we call the Passion Week. It begins with Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem with a joyful celebration only to be replaced with cries for His crucifixion just a few days later. Now Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem. He is literally fulfilling prophecy. However, upon reaching the city, He weeps over the city of Jerusalem because they have missed Him and what He's really doing. Let's turn to the text. Let's read the text together. Starting in verse 28 of Luke chapter 19. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent 
went away and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd or multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When He approached Jerusalem, He saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you do not recognize the time of your visitation. Heavenly Father, continue to speak to us through Your Word. Move among us. Shape us and mold us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Three different scenes that we see happening here. The first scene is the cult, verses 28-35. through 35. It's interesting if you note the way Luke starts off the story after he said these things. He's linking the triumphal entry with the parable that this precedes it, talking about kingship. Specifically, Jesus' kingship. So here he comes. He says, when he approached Bethphage and Bethany. Now, Bethphage was the bigger city. And they were just located east of Jerusalem. Bethany lies on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. It was about two to three miles away from Jerusalem. Now, Bethany, Jesus had a special place in his heart for that city or for that town. That's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. In fact, that's the place where he raised Lazarus from the dead. The story goes on to tell us that near the mount that is called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, that lies directly east of Jerusalem, 20, excuse me, 2,660 feet above sea level. Can you imagine as he comes over that, that, that mount and he looks down on the city, knowing exactly what's going to happen? I wonder what emotions or thoughts Jesus had in that moment. So we know the rest of the story, but put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Everything that's happening. I'm going to jump a little ahead of myself. I want you to understand, as this Luke tells us the story, there's an atmosphere brewing. It's getting very exciting in Jerusalem. A lot of stuff bubbling up. He tells them, go into the village ahead of you as you enter, and you will find a colt. Now, we're not given the names of the disciples who went. Some say possibly Peter and John, but we don't know for certain. But they went into the village. They went in, they found the colt, just as Jesus told them that it would be. They took it, 
The owners say, hey, what are you doing? Hey, the Lord needs, needs of it. They, they let him have it, and he takes them back to Jesus, just as Jesus told them. Very simple task when you sit here and read the story, but it reminds us of the sovereignty of Christ. He hadn't gone ahead of the disciples. He hadn't prearranged this. He just told them what to do, and they did it, and they found it. Look what the text says in the story. Those who were sent away found it just as he told them. Now that should encourage you and I in our walk with the Lord. There is nothing that we face in life that he cannot control. He has the ability to orchestrate even the smallest details of our life. We tend to think that the Lord's unconcerned with trivial matters that we're faced with day in and day out. But He's very mindful of those things. And He is in absolute control of it all. I remember we drove one time to Virginia and my girls were spoiled from flying all the time, but we drove and we went through Tennessee and Chattanooga. And I remember as a kid, we go through Chattanooga, see Ruby City, I mean, excuse me, Ruby Falls. On, can we stop that? No, we got to keep going. This time I was driving, and we're going to stop. We're going to see these Ruby Falls. And you, you go up the mountain, you actually take this elevator down in there, down inside the mountain. And you're going down, there's glass right there. You can see the, the rocks flying by, uh, going by. And you go down, there's a like a creek or a little, not quite a river, but bigger than the creek, and there's these falls. And you go way back up in there. They know it's coming down through the mountain somehow, but they've gone back to trace it back. They can never find exactly how that water comes in. It's absolutely beautiful. Then they turn off the lights. Have you guys ever been spelunking in a cave and, and they turn off the lights on you? And they tell you, put your hand like this, and everybody starts doing this, they turn the lights, everybody, you, but you cannot see your hand. I said all that to say this. As I was looking around, taking it all in, and so a, a small voice talked to me. I said, man, God, this is beautiful. You did this in the dark. Oh, boy, you haven't seen nothing yet. You know, he is in control, isn't he? You think about creation. Who commanded the sun to rise this morning? Who's, who's controlling the earth go around the sun, the rotation of the earth, the oxygen that we breathe, the food that we eat? He all provides that. The planets that we have to see with a telescope and then the smallest things we see with a microscope. All that. I had to take biology when I was going to seminary to a community college and learn about DNA. It's absolutely amazing how each little part knows exactly what to do. Every small detail. It's just absolutely amazing. If God can take care of all those things, from the biggest things to the smallest things we can't even see with our naked eye, I'm telling you, He can take care of your problem. I don't care what you're dealing with this morning. And I know we're all kind of concerned about the state of our nation. We should be praying and interceding for our nation. But God's still on His throne. doesn't matter who's in the White House. It can't take God off the throne. The story goes on to say that they brought it, the colt, to Jesus. They threw their coats on it and they put Jesus on. In other words, they helped Jesus on to the colt. This reveals something about disciples, their willingness to help Him, the willingness to, to do this, to make it more comfortable for Him, but also that they were committed to Him. 
being submissive to his will. Now in John chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, he tells us that this is done to fulfill prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, which states, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humbled and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the fowl of a donkey, or the offspring of a donkey. He is fulfilling prophecy. Now I just wonder, because they were, they were all Jewish young men, well now they're men now, but when they were boys, they were taught all this. Did that ever go through their mind? Did they ever pull up, remember what Zechariah said about the Messiah? I'm going to speculate. We're, we're not told. And think about this. He, he ties the parable of the kingship and they're going to bring Jesus in, but he's on a donkey. Which is a a peaceful... It, it declares an attitude of peace. I mean, if, if, a, if he wanted to take over by military, he would have rode a war, war horse into Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't do that, did he? He rode in humble and mounted on a donkey. Now I must warn you, Jesus is coming again. This time he's not mounted on a donkey. He's coming in on a white horse, which symbolizes victory and Lord of Lord and King of Kings. He's not over to take sides. He will come over and establish His rule. They dismissed it, what He was doing. They didn't recognize it, did they? But it gets more. See how the story's starting to build? Because now you come to scene two where you have rejoicing and rebuking. It tells us they were spreading their coats. After He was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. That's a sign of homage. It's an act of respect or tribute. We see an example of that in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13 that tell us that they heard and each man took his garment, placed it under, it under him on the bare steps, and he blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king. So this is what they would do for, for recognizing a king. But remember, he's coming in on a donkey. You, you see the limit I'm trying to paint here? They're, they're hailing him as king, but he's not coming on a war horse. He's coming on a donkey. Now, interesting enough, Luke does not mention anything about the palm branches. We'll get to that to, in a moment. He does tell us as, the, as he was approaching the whole crowd, a multitude of disciples, so he's coming down the mount. These people are coming out of the cities, huge multitudes coming up to him. Now, biblical scholars believe the, uh, the uh, population of Jerusalem was probably about 50,000, but during Passover... It could swell from 100,000 to 200,000 people. This was a very charged, emotional, exciting political environment. And the city leaders knew that any disruption could lead to violence. Now in Matthew and Mark, they tell us about these palm branches that they're waving. Now palm branches play, play no part in Passover whatsoever. They play a part in what they call the Feast of the Tabernacles. They built these little huts and they would live with them. And what they're signifying by that is they're remembering God's provision while they're in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. 
It also reminded them of God's past goodness and His provision in the wilderness, like I just mentioned, but also His present goodness and provision by the completion of the harvest. But palm branches played a part as a national symbol that commemorated the time of the Maccabees that were instrumental in overthrow the Greco-Syrian rule of Israel. A procession celebrated the rededication of the temple in 164 B.C. and then winning of full political independence in 141 B.C. It was a national symbol. We'll get to what they're shouting in a minute. Now they're waving these palm branches in the air, which has a lot of nationalistic overtones to it. The best way I can describe it is like us waving the American flag as the president goes by in his limo. Can you see the picture? Can you see what's going on? They began to praise God. How they praise God? Look, look, it's not a quick question. Look at what. How they praise God? Well, loud voice, but how they, how they describe it? Joyfully, right? By the word, that word loud in the Greek is mega, which where we get like mega, you know, let's mega size our meal. So it's very loud voice that they're doing this. They're offering praise and worship to him. And look what they say. I'm going to read it like, I hope I don't blow out your ears. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, can you imagine a whole multitude of disciples shouting that with a loud voice? Now, they're quoting Psalm 118.26, but not really because you don't find the word king in that passage. It says, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now, sometimes they would use that most of the time as a greeting to pilgrims who are coming back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. If you know Israel's history, at one point they divided. Northern king was captured and the southern kingdom was captured. So people were dispersed all over the place. Some people came back, some people didn't. So all of them would come back to celebrate the Passover. And that's sometimes they would greet each other that way. Now, welcome and victory is expressed in Psalm 118. Perhaps it could have been expressed to a prince in the house of David. However, nowhere in that psalm is explicitly said. So it's obvious the crowd has their own understanding of what the psalmist was saying. Now you have him riding on a donkey. They're waving these palms. They're, they're spreading their garments down, recognizing that he is a king riding on this donkey. Now they're waving palm branches. Man, he's it. He's going to restore Israel. Because you know his fame and popularity has spread. This dude raised Lazarus from the dead. Imagine what he's going to do to the Romans. They're getting excited. And now all this is going on. And now you have the rebuking part. It tells us some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Boy, and they're not trying to save Jesus from being held in as a Messiah and what the Romans may do to him. They're not trying to Look out for Jesus' best interest. They're trying to stop the praise of the people. They were displeased with their worship. It was an attempt to squelch the worship of the people. (laughs) I don't love Jesus' response here. Look what he says. I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Creation will cry out. Creation cries out every single day to its Creator. 
There is a song, and the artist escapes my thought for a second, but it was called Cartoons, and he was talking, oh, I think it was Chris Rice, talking about cartoons, if the cartoons could praise the Lord. He could do every little cartoon. Of course, kids wouldn't know some of these cartoons now because they're off the air, like the Flintstones, Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo could praise the Lord because he's been saved, what do you sound like? But he ends the song by saying, look, it's not the cartoon's job to sing praise to God. It's not really, creation is going to do it, but he allows us to do that praise for ourselves. I don't know about you, I don't want creation taking my place. I want to cry out and praise him because he is worthy of all our praise, adoration, and worship. Now, if you read on this story, which I encourage you to do this week, one of the first places he goes is to the temple. And there's money changers in there because these pilgrims come from all over the place. They would change their money into temple money so they could make offering with it. And there was a little cheating going on in that. And he calls him, you call, you've changed my father's house from a house of prayer into a house of thieves. He turns the tables over. It still amazes me how you have this whole scene of praise and adoration, people crying out, and just a few days later, they're saying, crucify him. Crucify him. And before I get too big of a head, I'll be right there with them screaming the same exact thing. Think about that. They, Pilate, you know, I, I do kind of feel sorry for Pilate. He was in a no-one situation, really. He recognizes what's going to happen. He brings out Barabbas, a known murderer. He turned him loose, but they want to crucify Jesus. All this is happening, all this praise. And, you know, what would you do if people started praising you like that? I mean, just think about it. But look what happens in the third scene. Verses 41 through 44, Jesus starts to weep over the city. Not the response that you might... It's almost anticlimactic, isn't it? You have all this praise and worship, and now he starts to weep. As he approached Jerusalem, it says, he saw the city and wept over it. He is weeping for the fate of Jerusalem and the people of Israel because what they experienced after the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. that's actually described in Psalm 137 will be relived. He says, if you had known in this day, even you. And why that says, if you had known in even you, because the you is emphatic. So in other words, it would say, if you... See the difference of the emphasis on you talking to the city. If you would have known the peace that was offered to it, but you didn't. And now instead of peace, you will now experience war. He says, the things that make for peace are hidden from your eyes. Reminds you back in Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43, the blind beggar who was sitting on the side of the road didn't see Jesus, had never met Jesus, but he heard about him and he knew he was coming. He didn't offer Jesus anything. He just cried out to him, Jesus, have mercy on me, son of David. He goes, what do you want? I want to see you again. He heals. It's amazing to me. Here's a blind beggar that caught more who Jesus was than this whole crowd of disciples that met him coming into Jerusalem that day. He says, for the day will come upon you when your enemies will. 
throw up a barricade and abatement against you, surround or encircle you, keep people from escaping the city. It's a siege going on. They will hem or close you in on every side. They will continue pressure of the attacks on the city. They will level or crush you to the ground and children within you and not leave one stone upon another. What Jesus is talking about is destruction of Jerusalem that will happen in the year 70 A.D. Why is all this going to happen? Look what it says. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now, every illustration breaks down, okay? But I just want to share this with you. Imagine hearing the gospel all the days of your life, knowing it, but never responding to it. Oh, you could quote Bible verses. You know the books of the Bible. You could quote chapters and chapters of Scripture, but yet never truly responded. And on that day when you stand before God, Lord, didn't I do all these wonderful things in Your name? He won't deny that You did them. But He'll deny that He ever knew You. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. All those times you had to respond time and time and time again. And yet, you did not respond. Disciples, in their own way, kind of got who Jesus is, but Jerusalem rejected Him. See, rather than seeing Jesus' triumphal entry for what it was for them in a prophecy, many, including religious leaders, excuse me, religious leaders were so concerned with keeping their own power and authority, they missed the Messiah. Here's the point. You can be so close to religion and totally miss God. Now, let me explain what I'm talking about. Religion, in my definition, simple definition, is man's attempt to reach God. How can we appease God? How can we earn favor with God? What can we do to obtain that relationship? Brothers and sisters, dearly beloved, those who have watched me over the internet, you cannot do anything to reach God. Christianity said, no, you can't, but God reached down to man. So we can be so busy about doing the religious things. Coming to church. Well, first of all, you don't come to church, you are the church. This is important. Hebrews tells us not to forsake this assembling of ourselves as the habit of some, but even more as you see the day approaching. We should gather to encourage, to pray, and to rejoice with each other. And at times, weep with one another. But just coming to a building and sitting in a pew, hearing all these things and not responding and applying it to your life does you absolutely no good. It reminds me with time we took that trip to Virginia on the way home. We decided to take a long way, went through Cumberland Gap, down through Kentucky, beautiful country. And we came to St. Louis, and there was that arch. And as a kid, I remember seeing that on Monday Night Football, that arch. I thought, hey, you know, but we got there. And we decided to go because we'd never been. I don't know if you remember this or not, but I got there, and I was like, wow, this thing is huge. I couldn't believe how big it was. And then to go up in, you had to go underneath the ground. They had shops and restaurants, I didn't know this all exists. I was like, wow, I never knew about this. And you took this little elevator. It's a little, it's hard to really explain. I wish I had a picture. It was about, about like this. And you kind of sat down in it, but it also tilted. So as you went up the arch, you didn't go like this. It will tilt back like this, which made Tammy kind of scared. 
And you get to the top of it, and I kid you not, it's probably from right, right here where the keyboard is to where, I mean, that's about how wide it is at the very top. And when you look out the window, there's nothing underneath you. It's an arch. Whoa! I told Tim, I feel it moving. I feel it moving. Let's go. Let's go. But here's my point. I have seen the arch. I could re research about the arch, see pictures of that arch, but until I got there and saw it for myself, experienced it for myself, it meant absolutely nothing how magnificent that structure is. And the same thing true is about Jesus. I can sit there too, I preach so I'm blue in the face, but until you make the decision to experience God for yourself, you will miss it just like they missed it back then. Don't miss it. Please, I beg of you, do not miss it. Because at the end of the day, we can't blame each other for anything. We like to play the blame game here in the United States. We have leadership from the top down. It's their fault. It's their fault. It's their fault. I can't stand before God one day and say, well, God, look what Roger did. God says, hey, it's none of your business what Roger did. The business is my son died for you. What would you do with it? What would you do with it? Brothers and sisters, we need to live looking through the lens of who Jesus, not was, but is. It's like when you get a prescription for contact lenses or glasses, which I've worn them for all my life. They do absolutely no good if you get the wrong prescription. It could be downright dangerous. Instead of looking through our own goodness, we need to look at life through the finished work of Christ on that cross. Because we don't, if we keep looking through what we're doing and miss that, we'll miss God's work time and time again and we'll keep missing it. You ever looked at people and said, man, how can they be like that? How can they? You can do that too. I'm telling you. But you have to make this, you have to step back of your comfort zone and say, God, I don't know how you're going to do this, but here I am. Jesus wants to be in our lives and transform every area of our lives. Are we missing this because we're too busy doing other things? Maybe we're spending too much time with media. Now I get on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yes, I do. And I watch movies. But I have to schedule hit that discipline where I sit and read the Word, not just for, Bible, for sermon prep, but for my own spirituality. Because if all I do is read the Bible for the next sermon, I'm missing the point. We need to spend more time praying and reading our Bible, talking to our children about God, and participating in disciple-based small groups. And the most original small group is, of course, what we call Sunday school. We need to ask a, a, take a, a close look at ourselves and ask us ourselves, are we, have we traded righteousness for self-righteousness? Are you missing Jesus like the leaders did in this text? Because you're too worried about where you're going to sit? What are you going to wear? What color, the color, what color the carpet is going to be in the sanctuary? What kind of songs are you going to sing? Look, the whole point of this whole thing, for me trying to breathe, preach the Word of God to Roger Lenius worship, the whole point of this whole thing by being here is Jesus. And the minute we lose sight of that, we've lost it. It's all about Him. What's your relationship look like with Him right now? Do you have one? 
I invite you, come receive that gift and it will change your life. Don't wait till you clean everything up because you never will. You say, here it is, God. You take it. Here I am. Are you faithfully serving through a local body of believers? Serving our Lord and Savior. This is His church. This is His body. This is His mission. It's His message. It's His salvation. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. It's all about Him. It's not about me, you, or Forest Creek Baptist Church. It's all about Him. And I'm grieved this morning because my nation, my countrymen, have missed it. They have missed the point. And it's our job as the church to go out there and tell them who Jesus is. Not by quoting a bunch of verses to them, but you need to know verses to point them to. But tell them your story. Tell them what He means to you. But it's hard to have a story like that if we've never experienced Him. Have you experienced God like that? He is here in this moment saying, here I am. Reaching out His nail-scarred hand to you. He has done everything that He can possibly do. It still has to be your choice. It still has to be your decision. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with that information? Because it has effect for all eternity. Don't put off today to the mark which you need to take care of today. Don't, don't put it off. Do with it right now. Perhaps he's leading you here to join us. Whatever it is, please, I beg of you, I exhort you, take care of it right here and right now. Just stand with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we could come together. We thank you for your word that you have preserved through all these years. That you provided so we can read it in the language we understand English. We can read it. And Father, you've given us the gift of your Holy Spirit so we can understand it. Father, I pray for everyone in this room, everybody within the sound of my voice, dear God, what's ever keeping them back, I pray that you break that chain, that you knock down that wall. On this day, as we look back, Jesus, when you entered Jerusalem that day, it's very easy for us to get critical and talk about how people missed it, but the truth of it is, Christ, we miss you every day. We're so busy with maintaining our own schedules, our own agendas, that we miss it. And Father, we ask for your forgiveness. Help us to be mindful of every opportunity you've given us make the most of the time because we know time is short. Continue, move, and speak among us this morning. In Christ's name we pray.